A tour of the exclusion zone around the former power plant costs around $100. Officials say radiation levels are now low enough that visiting is safe, even though no one has been allowed to live here for decades. It's not exactly picturesque, but the site of the world's worst nuclear accident is becoming a mainstream tourist attraction. Welcome to the God Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Did you happen to catch Chernobyl, the miniseries, and wonder if something like that could happen here? Today, we're talking about nuclear reactor safety. And stick around after the interview for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. Well, the HBO miniseries Chernobyl came into my life a few months ago and lit up my screen, along with the screens of 8 million other viewers, with the devastating aftermath of a nuclear power plant accident. While it was very dramatic and gripping, I couldn't help wonder how much of it was factual. As plenty of opinion pieces will tell you, the show improvised a lot on who was where and what happened when, but one of the things they did get right remains a problem to this day. When science is sidelined by other interests, political leaders don't make the decisions that are best for everybody. Our listeners know this scenario well, because it's happening right now in the U.S. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which oversees commercial nuclear power plants and is tasked with protecting public health and safety, is very receptive to industry requests to cut the scope and frequency of many important safety inspections. We've seen the consequences of weak safety oversight before, from nuclear disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima to the series of Boeing 737 MAX 8 crashes earlier this year. So why is the nuclear industry racing to roll back safety standards? In search of an answer, I welcomed my colleague, Dr. Edwin Lyman, back to the podcast. He's a physicist and acting director of the Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists, we spoke last year about proposals for a new generation of nuclear reactors. Today, he's back to talk about new threats to the safety of U.S. nuclear plants and explain why things have gone wrong in the past. We'll debunk some myths, answer questions from you, our listeners, and take a trip to a place most of us will never want to visit. Ed, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Great to be here again. So, Ed, did, did you watch the HBO miniseries Chernobyl? I only uh, managed to see two out of the five episodes, unfortunately. Yeah. But I've heard a lot about it. I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've read a yeah. lot about it. There's yes. a lot of conversation going on. What did you take away from it? Overall, the big picture historical events were accurate, but I feel like some of the details were hyped up for dramatic effect and possibly the focus was shifted a little bit from where I think it needed to be. Overall, I'm certainly glad to see that it got people talking about nuclear safety, and I hope that the lessons of Chernobyl can be appreciated today, even in the different context here in the United States. Is there an easy way for you to explain what happened? Uh, the accident was initiated by a safety test. The safety test was going to be run in a regime where the reactor was unstable, but the reactor operators didn't really appreciate that. So when they started the test, they didn't fully understand the conditions in the reactor 
were the instabilities of the reactor, and as a result, they took actions which caused the reactor to be more unstable and eventually to experience a runaway chain reaction that is essentially um, overheat so rapidly that it caused a massive steam explosion, uh, blew the, uh, a hole in the roof, and dispersed radioactivity over a wide area. Uh, a ensuing graphite fire uh, burned for many days, continuing to release radioactivity until it was finally contained. So that's the accident in a nutshell. Given the publicity of this mini-series, I was really surprised to see here, just in the news in the past couple of weeks, the nuclear industry pushing for less oversight of nuclear power plants. And I'm just curious, what, what's up with that? Uh, nuclear uh, power plants in the country today are under great financial pressure, mostly due to the low cost of fossil fuels and their inability to compete. So the owners of the reactors are looking for any way possible to cut their operating costs. One expense that the operators see is due to the oversight of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The NRC conducts inspections uh, that not only requires uh, staff time at the reactors to prepare for those inspections, but it also could result in discovery of violations which have to be fixed, and that means spending money. So if there are fewer inspections, if the inspections don't uh, look as hard, they may miss problems, and the plant owners may have longer to address them because the regulators didn't catch them. What are some examples of types of oversight that they want to ease up on? One uh, concrete example is a type of inspection that the NRC conducts every two years. And this is a special kind of inspection where the NRC is actually inspecting how reactor owners catch problems at their own plants. So it's a, it's a very important inspection because years ago, the NRC delegated more responsibility to plant owners uh, for programs where they would look for problems and catch them and correct them on an ongoing basis. Because NRC inspectors can't look everywhere all the time. And so it's much better if the reactor owners are in a position to do their own reviews and inspections, but those have to be done properly. They have to be doing the right things. They have to be looking at the right frequency. And um, so as a result, to make sure that they're doing the right thing, the NRC has to watch them. But one of the proposals now is to reduce the NRC's oversight of those self-inspections. So if you allow reactor owners to have more responsibility for catching problems as they arise, you have to make sure that they're doing the right thing. So it's very important to make sure those inspections are, uh, of those programs are done at the right frequency. But the um, NRC has decided just to um, do them every three years instead of every two. And it's not clear that that's being based on any real issue that needs to be addressed. And that's really the problem with the changes that are being proposed now. It's not clear that they're actually solving any problems. There's no real rationale for doing them except to reduce oversight of the industry. And in that particular case, there were substantial objections from some NRC staff about reducing the frequency of these inspections without first assessing 
what the impacts could be. In other words, doing a comprehensive analysis of what those inspections do and how frequently do you really need to do them to make sure they're effective. That study has not been completed yet, yet the staff is going ahead and recommending that they reduce the inspection frequency anyway. Are there currently nuclear power plants that you are concerned about? I'd say that every plant, you know, is unique and has its own concerns. Certainly some uh, make me worry more than others. For instance, the Indian Point nuclear plant in uh, New York State. It's only 25 miles from the boundaries of New York City where I, where I grew up. Uh, that plant should not have been located where it is because the number of people within 50 miles, uh, last time I checked, it was uh, over 16 million, is really uh, too great. If you're going to have nuclear power, you should make sure that that the uh, there's a sufficient region around every plant that's low population density so that if evacuation or other emergency measures are needed, they can be carried out effectively. And by simply suburbanization and development, uh, a lot of plants around the country uh, have uh, that were originally sited in rural areas now find themselves in, in suburbs and populations increasing. And Indian Point's the poster child for that. Uh, it is shutting down in the next uh, few years, but certainly the potential impact of Indian Point, both from a safety and a security perspective, has always been a concern. Then there are plants that are vulnerable to seismic events. They're vulnerable to flooding. And uh, again, it's uh, really highly dependent on, on the location of the plant and how it was designed in the first place. Uh, but uh, I would say every plant has, has its own risks, and they have to be considered in, that, in their own context. One of our listeners actually wrote in with a couple of questions. Let me run these by you. Given that our nuclear power plants are coming upwards of 40 years, what do current regulations say about when plants should be decommissioned? Well, the uh, current regulations allow for 40-year operating licenses for nuclear plants, with the potential for a license renewal. Most plants have applied for and received 20-year license renewals, but that, again, is not an indication of the, the maximum lifetime of a plant. There is no regulation that specifies it. So some plants, I think there are six reactors now, have applied for what they call a subsequent license renewal. That would be from 60 years to, to 80 years. Just keep changing that oil right. and, That's you know, right. fixing the uh, rust and it'll be fine. A little facetious, but fundamentally the idea is the same. The idea is that it doesn't really matter uh, too much how old the plant is as long as you can inspect and maintain those system structures and components that are aging so that they stay within a, an acceptable range. Now, there are certain things that can't be changed. For instance, the concrete uh, and steel containment buildings around most plants. It's not something that's going to be replaced. There's buried piping at a lot of plants. This piping was uh, never intended to be replaced, but some of it is corroding. So there may be an issue with how do you manage uh, those structures that can't be replaced. And finally, the reactor vessels. Uh, these are the steel vessels that hold the nuclear fuel in reactors. Um, they 
become embrittled over time as they're bombarded with neutrons. And there is a risk uh, that they could shatter like uh, glass if they are sufficiently embrittled and they undergo uh, rapid cooling. So that, that's one of the, what it's called, a, a time-limiting uh, aspects of nuclear plant because those reactor vessels would be way too expensive to ever replace. So the, the NRC essentially says those components that can be monitored and maintained and replaced if necessary will be put under aging management programs. Those components that can't be replaced have to be assessed for how bad things will get by the end of the license period. So that's a long answer, but basically the NRC has no set lifetime for plants, um, but it is considering the first extended uh, license renewal to 80 years. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. I'm continuing my push to promote Got Science, so please tell your friends, colleagues, family, your pet groomer about the episodes and topics you like. And if you have a sec, please leave us a review. It's quick and easy. When you open Got Science in your podcast app, scroll down to the bottom of the list to ratings and reviews and leave a comment. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at Got Science UCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So another question that came in was, um, he says, we've read that some U.S. nuclear missile defense systems are still running software off of floppy disks. How up to date is the automation and training at U.S. nuclear power facilities? Well, here's the counterintuitive thing. Most nuclear plants have analog instrumentation control systems for the most critical safety-related components. That's because the plants are, uh, predate the digital era. And if you're going to upgrade those systems to digital, it introduces a wide range of issues that are hard to resolve. The most obvious is cybersecurity. So if you have a plant that, is, uh, that has analog uh, instrumentation controls, it's a lot harder for an offsite hacker to, uh, to be able to affect those safety-related systems. However, if you upgrade to digital instrumentation control, then you are potentially opening up a new avenue for uh, cyber attack. So you have to proceed with caution uh, in upgrading those to digital uh, instrumentation control. There's also an issue about really figuring out how those systems work in very complex scenarios because um, nuclear plants have a lot of interrelated uh, safety systems and being able to disentangle those and have a clear path between how safety systems work and how the digital uh, instrumentation controls would um, interact with them turns out to be a, a difficult task. So, uh, so it may 
sound like an obvious thing that those plants should be upgraded to digital, but that does introduce complications that need to be fully assessed. Ed, is it true that the next generation of nuclear power plants will be so safe that they can't melt down? It is not true. Any nuclear plant has vulnerabilities that could result in a serious accident or could be exploited. Um, It is true that you can design greater safety into nuclear power. There are ways to reduce that risk. Uh, But by and large, you're always going to have these vulnerabilities and you can't depend on the design to save the day. It's always going to be good design plus a well-run plant, uh, plus um, well-trained operators, plus robust inspections and maintenance, and also robust security to prevent against uh, sabotage attacks. How far-fetched is the idea that terrorists could attack a nuclear power plant? What would they be trying to to do or to to get? For uh, a commercial nuclear power plant in this country, the greatest concern is radiological sabotage. And that is a deliberate act that could destroy or disable enough of the safety systems and the backup safety systems uh, that the reactor would melt down and there'd be very little that the plant operators could do about that. And it's a very real threat because uh, if there were a a well-trained paramilitary type terrorist attack at a nuclear reactor uh, without a robust security response, the attackers could essentially destroy enough equipment to cause a meltdown within minutes. So there's a very short time window for trying to respond if you have this type of event. The best thing to do is to prevent the attack from taking place. Uh, So in order to verify that, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission runs what it calls force-on-force inspections, where it actually leads a team, including a mock adversary force, to nuclear power plants. Every plant is tested uh, every three years, and they run scenarios to test the security force at the plant, see if they can actually effectively defend the plant against these attackers. That's a program that's been required since uh, after the 9-11 attacks. However, it's undergone a lot of uh, changes over the last few years. The industry hates this type of exercise, especially if they lose. So they've been pressuring the NRC to make a lot of changes to the program that would make it harder for them to lose and give them fewer chances to lose. So there used to be three different scenarios run Uh, at each plant during these inspections, that's been reduced now to one. If a disaster like Chernobyl happened here, how do you think that nuclear plant operators and the NRC would would have dealt with it? Well, to be clear, um, the U.S. does not have power plants of the Chernobyl-type design, the RBMK. So the particular sequence of events that led to Chernobyl is not really uh, plausible at the light water reactors in the United States. However, there are other types of events that could result in similar consequences, and we saw that at at Fukushima Daiichi, the accident in Japan in March 2011, where three nuclear reactors of a design very similar 
to designs that are deployed here in the United States experienced meltdowns and large releases of radioactivity. So it's a fallacy to think that Chernobyl was an event that was only due to uh, Soviet incompetence and corruption and that that kind of thing couldn't happen here. Chernobyl couldn't happen here, but Fukushima could, or something worse than Fukushima. So that possibility has to be addressed and protected against. And the after Fukushima, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission did put into place requirements for plant operators to be able to cope with an event like Fukushima and hopefully to intervene effectively before the worst case where the reactor actually melts down. Uh, but those plans require testing, they require vigilance, they require equipment that's well-maintained and will be available, and they require thinking through all the what-ifs. You can't expect that you're going to anticipate everything that's going to happen. You have to be able to respond to events as they occur. And that's really the challenge, is having assurance that you're going to be able to handle whatever comes. Would you take a trip to Chernobyl now? Not only would I, but I have. Really? I was there in 2006. It was the 20th anniversary of the accident. I was in Ukraine for commemorations of the accident um, that were being held in Kiev. And there was an organized tour of Chernobyl. So I did go. Uh, that was more than 10 years ago. So the dose rate was somewhat higher than it is today. Uh, we were all equipped with uh, our own dosimeters. Uh, because we didn't trust the Ukrainian Radiation Protection Authority. Um, and so I kept an eye on the dose rates. Um, and knowing, you know, if you've ever turned on a dosimeter when you're at 30,000 feet in an aircraft, um, the dose rates are fairly alarming. And the dose rates generally in the Chernobyl exclusion zone were comparable to those you'd experience at 30,000 feet in an aircraft. So it's a little bit shocking to see those kinds of numbers when you're standing at, at sea level. I did see um, one of the funniest things, if you can say it's funny, was in the exclusion zone, we had stopped in a village uh, within the exclusion zone, a ruined, abandoned village with buildings missing windows and roofs and doors and uh, totally overgrown um, and so we're kind of just wandering around there like a ghost town and then someone walks by walking a dog Some, <laughs> there are people living there that's fascinating yeah. I know there's a whole big tourist industry around it and people right and I think maybe they uh, need to give more attention to radiation protection for the visitors there like I said, when we went in, there was virtually nothing, um, <laughs> except we had to pass through uh, whole body counters at the perimeter. But again, I didn't, not sure I trusted those machines. I, I did, did do my own surveys when I got home. Uh, didn't seem to find any contamination. Well, Ed, yeah. thanks for taking time to sit down and chat with me about Chernobyl, the miniseries. <laughs> Thank you. It was great. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This Week in Science History, 
We're going to August 27, 2003, in Fairbanks, Alaska. For those who don't know their Alaska geography, Fairbanks is the second most populated city in Alaska and the largest in the interior of the state. It's far enough north that around this time of year it's getting about 18 hours of sunlight, but in the depths of winter that drops to about seven and a half, and the temperature can drop as low as 60 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. In conditions like that, it's all the more important to keep the power on. But for years, the city faced cascading blackouts and other smaller failures on a regular basis. So Fairbanks turned to battery power as a solution. On August 27, 2003, they connected to a 1,400-ton battery energy storage system that covered more than 10,000 square feet. At the time, it was the world's largest battery, set to provide up to 40 megawatts of power for seven minutes, giving the power operators in Fairbanks a chance to turn on the city's backup diesel generators and restore power to the community. These days, energy storage isn't just a matter of backup systems. It's a climate solution that we need to be investing in. Our current energy system is kind of like the system we had for distributing food before refrigeration. Most food used to have to be eaten right away, but refrigeration allowed us to store food until we were ready to use it. We're currently operating on a similar use it or lose it basis with our electricity grid. For the most part, Utilities have to produce the amount of electricity that is needed every second of every day with no way to store excess energy for later use. That's where energy storage comes in. Helping ensure that energy that's produced, but not used in that immediate moment, can still be put to use to fulfill later demands. Like the battery system in Fairbanks, expanding our energy storage can help reduce power outages for critical infrastructure. But it can also help reduce consumers' bills and when partnered with clean energy sources, reduce global warming emissions. Strategic deployment of energy storage can also replace fossil fuel generation that disproportionately affects the health of low-income communities and communities of color. So while the people of Fairbanks use their battery energy storage system to temporarily keep the lights on in the face of power failures, we need to push to improve the grid's energy storage capabilities to help power a clean energy future in the face of increasing climate change. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org slash partners. Special thanks to Dr. Edwin Lyman. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.